And good welcome and good morning and all of that to another thrilling, exciting class in the bunker. Um, as we get started, a couple of things, uh, housekeeping. I realize that uh, I don't always mention the fact that uh, if you go to kevinhinkley.com and get yourself put on the mailing list that was originally there for our class uh, mailing list, uh, that on uh, Sunday mornings I, I send out the PowerPoint ahead of time so you can actually have the, today's PowerPoint in front of you. Uh, while you do that, it also gives you updates on the class and things like that. So that's at, that's at kevinhinkley.com. And uh, again, just that ubiquitous reminder that says, and you can get this class on YouTube uh, at LDS Class Discussions with Kevin Hinckley. Uh, for those that have been wanting to be able to, to catch this, especially if you're starting to go back to church and you're getting a chance to sit with the other 30 people uh, in your mask, with no singing, uh, but being able to take the sacrament and be be part of that. So, uh, anyway, welcome to all of you who are here, and uh, to the seven or eight states that you're also watching from. Uh, it's good to have everybody here. So, anyway, uh, let's go ahead and get started today. Uh, today's class is going to be on hearing with covenant ears. Um, and I know that you're wanting to know exactly what that uh, means. This, this, this should this class should be a lot of fun. Now, I want to start with uh, a little uh, story that uh, Sister Gong told about an experience that she had with, uh, with Elder Gong of the uh, Quorum of the Twelve, where she said that she was having a hard time hearing him, and, and he would say something and she didn't necessarily hear it. So, so she went off to an audiologist to have her hearing checked, and the audiologist ran the hearing check on her and and said to her uh, you have perfect hearing no problem your problem is is that you're not listening uh, ouch um, that seems to be a problem for a lot of us that we may be hearing but not listening and that's part of the direction that we want to go today because we're as we're going to talk about I think part of of holding the covenant and being covenant people is that we're going to have a responsibility to listen in a variety of places. So, uh, so here's vignette uh, number two. Uh, in the in the early uh, in the 1860s, there was really a desire to be able to uh, have a transcontinental railroad uh, from the east coast to the west coast. Uh, and as we know. Uh, they were going to start from the west coast and work forward and then the east coast they were working to out west uh, and one of the ways that the government came up with to try and incentivize these railroads companies to to actually undertake this uh, this big journey was that they deeded to them a certain amount of property for every mile of railway that they laid down so the more railway they, they uh, laid down, the more property the, the company was able to amass uh, for themselves. So as they started from the west, building along, they started from the east. Now, the two uh, railway companies, as they were nearing each other, realized that when they finally joined together, they would lose the boondoggle, which had been all this property that they were accruing for the company. 
So by mutual consent, uh, the story goes, is that as the railroads approached each other, they deliberately missed each other (laughs) and kept on going and kept on accruing land. And so now what you got for, for some untold distance was parallel railways that never met. And they just happily kept along building and accruing land and building and they might wave to each other over the other track, but they're just, they're just moving along. Now, obviously at some point uh, the federal government went, no, stop. You actually have to uh, go ahead and meet. Uh, And that's when we get the moment uh, that uh, in Utah we're very proud of at at Promontory Point where it finally met and the two railways came together and now we had our transcontinental railroad. Now, in the the discussion that we're going to have today about listening... I think the if I if I could describe with a single symbol what I think I look at every day in society out there and also in my office it would be this we are really good and we become very good at running parallel tracks to each other with one going in one complete direction with a complete narrative of what the truth is and and the other person that we're trying to have some connection with whether it's somebody in social media or somebody in our own family uh, or in our ward that they are running a parallel path and never the two meet we are running along and there are few promontory moments where we actually cross and connect and are able to flow things back and forth between the two uh, narratives. That's a problem. Uh, and as has been over-talked about, I think, uh, uh, companies like Google and Amazon and Twitter and all those are very, very good with algorithms of making sure that what's in your viewing, what's in your face and what's in your hearing is going to be things that you recognize and you hear and agree with you. And that's, as we've talked about, the problem of living in our own echo chambers where we only hear the voices that agree with us and we are screened out from hearing the other voices that we don't agree with. And and sometimes we do that deliberately, but sometimes by just sheer repetition. You know, I will have a couple in my office and they are just running parallel stories. You talk to one and there is one picture that they paint. You talk to the other, it's a completely different picture they paint. And there aren't very many places where they promontory. And they meet together and they actually listen. And what a problem this is, uh, where we're trying to learn how to listen to one another. Uh, And we're going to find that that becomes an important Uh, area for us as we work towards Zion and the fulfilling of the covenants that the Lord intends us to have. Now, think about uh, how we do this. I want to start with the idea of our heavenly petitions. This is where we're struggling with things and and we're going to ask heaven for help. And so 
what it is that we do. We say, hear me, heaven. Hear me, heavenly father. Uh, I, I'm thinking about, uh, like, for instance, in uh, Les Miserables, when you have uh, uh, Jean Valjean, who is just crying out and say, saying, God on high, hear my prayer. You know, in my times of need, you've always been there and I need your help. I've got this boy that needs to be rescued and he's young and he's afraid and I need your help. And so there's a pattern that starts to develop. We go, hear me. Uh, and then we reach out in prayer. And what is it that we're wanting from heaven? Well, I think there's three things that happen on the other side of trying to connect with somebody. Uh, first of all, we want them to actually listen. Uh, I had a had a, a lady in my office the other day and she's saying, my husband never listens to me. I'm talking to me. I'm talking to him and he's just not hearing me. And I'm saying, well, what's he doing while you are talking to him? Well, he's he's looking at his computer and he's going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And so he's hearing me, but he's just not listening. And I'm saying, no, he's not hearing or listening, <laughs> you know, uh, because he hasn't yet engaged. He's not really listening. His focus is somewhere else. I wish I could say that I was never guilty of that. Uh, please don't ask Cindy. She may have another story uh, for you on that. Um, but we want, we want, first of all, people to listen. And we want God to hear us. And then what do we want God to do? Well, now we're asking him to understand. In my time of need, I need you to not just hear me, hear my words, but I need you to understand my needs and understand my desires. Joseph Smith in Liberty Dale wasn't just saying, Oh God, where art thou? What he was saying is, Oh God, I need you to hear me and I need you to understand how desperate my situation is and my people's situation. And then what if, if you'll understand, then what? Well, then what you'll do is you'll act. So, so part of petitioning heaven is that we want heaven to hear us, but we want heaven to be understanding, and that's why we trust kind of in an all-powerful, all-understanding God who's going to know our heart and know our intents and know what we need. I need you to hear me. I need you to understand me. And then I need you to do something. Because if, if action isn't happening, we're not sure that we have been heard. We're waiting for something to occur. Maybe you just didn't hear me. Or maybe you didn't understand how hard this was for me. How would I know you understood? Well, then you would fix it. You would change it. I'm, I'm looking for action. I'm looking for you to do something. Well, that's the pattern that we have in our, our heavenly petitions. We need God to hear and understand and do. Now, surprise, surprise, it works the other way as well. So let me give you, let me give you an example of that. Um, if you are an observant Jew, then several times a day you're going to have on your lips the prayer of the Shema. Or the Shema. And what you're going to say is uh, Shema Israel, 
Adonai Alinehu, Adonai Achad. Hear, O Israel, God, our God is one God. Our God is wow. But more than anything, hear Israel. And you, and you get echoes of that in, in the, the Kirtland Temple dedicatory prayer when at the near the end of that you, you hear Joseph pray, Oh hear, oh hear, oh hear us, Lord. Let us hear that thy bright shining seraphs as angels will intervene with us. But then in section after section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord is saying, Hear me. Listen to what I'm saying. And then respond. That's the same thing that, that uh, Isaiah was trying to say. Uh, if we go into Isaiah 9, and Isaiah is saying, Isaiah is looking forward to a day when the people will do what? They will see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And if they hear with their ears, Isaiah says, and understand with their hearts and convert, do something, act. And as a result of that, if you will hear and understand and act on your side of the covenant grace that we were talking about, Charis, last week, the result is, is that you will be healed. God will fulfill his part of the contract and the covenant. But it begins with listening and hearing and understanding what, what's being said. Now, that's, so what we're trying to get across here is that hearing, us being able to hear, whether it's God or whether it's one another, Hearing leads to understanding and then to healing. If we would heal a lot of things, it's going to be dependent on how much we hear and how we respond and how we then act. So let's reverse this then. So, so basically what we're saying is this. God is going to say to us, hear me, hear what I have to say. Shema Israel, hear me. And then what does the Lord want and need from us? He, he needs us to be able to listen to his words. He needs us to understand. Think for a moment uh, as you roll into third Nephi and you get that moment with all the Nephites there at uh, the temple in Bountiful and they're hearing something and they're hearing words but they're not quite sure what it means or where it's coming from or what this is about. They're hearing it but they don't yet understand what's happening. And then for them, when will they really understand? They will understand in 3 Nephi when they act. 3 Nephi 11. What do they do? Each person at the temple in Bountiful will come forward and have a personal, physical connection with Jesus. One by one. It will be very personal to experience his wounds, experience his woundedness.
for them. And when that happens, now, and they have acted, now they understand. Remember, Jesus was adamant about saying, if any man will, will do my words, do my actions, you'll understand, you'll know. But you may have to be acting first in order to really fully understand that. Depends on actions. Then you're going to understand what the Lord was really trying to say to us. Okay. Now, this is the relationship that we have between us and deity. Now, take that same dynamic of listening, understanding, and doing. And now let's, now let's apply it in our everyday lives. A couple of weeks ago, um, we had a, a fun discussion about one of these patterns that is so human and so mortal to want to do, and that is to other. We talked about how there was a natural tendency for us to say, I am, he, I am me, and I understand all of the me's around me, and we get us, and this is our tribe, and this is who we are, and anybody outside of that, those are them's. The, that's the other people. That's the, we're the saints and they're the Gentiles, you know. We're the Republicans and they're the Democrats, you know. This is, you know, we're, we're it's, it's an othering kind of process. And when we do that, we kind of dehumanize and distance and we lead them to their narrative over there, those Gentiles and the people of the world and I'm a Latter-day Saint and... Those guys over there, those are Catholics, they have their narrative, and I, as a Latter-day Saint, I have mine. We just begin, that process of othering creates the situation where we start having parallel tracks and no promontories. And we may hear them, but we're not listening. And we certainly aren't hearing and listening enough to understand not just what they're saying, but what their intents of their hearts are, and what it is that they're really, what their concerns are. Without doing that, we act, but we act in isolation. We don't act in any way to try and connect. And we keep them as others. That's a particular problem. And it's, it's one that if we're, if we're embracing the covenant, we have to understand that with the covenant comes a responsibility to not other. The, the responsibility is to build and work towards Zion. And I don't think that's about building buildings. <laughs> I think that's about building promontories and connections to those that we would tend to see as others that we need to be able to pull together uh, and, and work towards one heart and one mind. Uh, so that there's no untoward feelings in our prayer circle of love that we have towards other people. Now, this isn't an easy thing that the Lord has asked us uh, to do. Um, because part of this in that process of othering we, we talked about the fact that 
uh, in, the, in the garden plot of the world, as Latter-day Saints, we're a pretty small plot. We're a pretty small garden. We are a little seed in this massive uh, world of ours. Okay? Now, no question. We have our Latter-day Saint plot. And inside our garden plot, as we talked about, there are some things that we do really well. Temple work. Additional scripture. Ongoing revelation. We're really good at that. And like somebody growing zucchini, we might say, well, we're anxious to share our zucchini with the world because if, if you'll just taste the zucchini, you'll see how great it is. Uh, just fry it up, I promise. It'll be good. Um, but in that process of trying to share from our garden plot with the rest of the world, we have been sometimes caught up in the fact that it says, our fruit, our vegetables, is the only fruit and the only vegetables. And there's nothing in any of the garden plots applicable to me whatsoever. And, and we talked about what a tragedy that is when we get caught in that othering mode of saying there's only my garden plot. We miss the beauty and the power and the truth and the knowledge that exists in all of these other garden plots that have things to share with us that will enrich our lives. And, and they might, we, we love our zucchini. But man, putting with some tomatoes would be a, a really good thing. And somebody else has got corn that we don't grow very well in our garden plot. And we have a chance to mix all of that together and share uh, with what we have. And that was when we were talking about uh, garden plots. Now, if we are listening, if we will understand we're going to find that there are sometimes people in these other plots that not only are listening as well, but there's enough of an invitation there for them to want to join us in our plot. And now those that were others are now us's, if that's a word. They have joined us there are other plotters with us. And that is tougher than we might think uh, that it is. I, uh, you know, as we, were, as we were talking this last semester about uh, the Apostle Paul, think about the size of the, the battle that the Apostle Paul was given. What, what a responsibility he had. And what a challenge. Because here's, here's what the Apostle Paul would do. He would come into a place like Ephesus with its great reliance on the massive temple of Artemis and all of the Artemis statues that were around. And, and, and Artemis was their patron saintess, their divine, their feminine deity that they worshipped that gave, that gave them fertility and took care of their crops and protected them and everything. And he came into that garden and Paul established a plot. I'm creating a new plot in the middle of your garden, he said. And we're going to create a, a, a branch, a house church of 
the way, for instance. Now, here's what he would do then, and this is what made this such a particular challenge as, as, as we talked about uh, in the last uh, few months. Paul came into this setting like Ephesus. And first of all, he would go to the synagogues and he'd talk to the Jews. And he'd say to them, your study of the prophets and of the law of Moses has perfectly prepared you to understand that the Christus, the, the anointed one, has come according to the law and the prophets who had all pointed at him. In fact, the temple was a signpost, not an endpost, for the living Christ who would come, be hung on a tree, and be resurrected and restore and do everything that was covenant to our father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would say to them, that's what we're striving here to do. Now, think about this so so we have you the, these Jews that would then say okay we're that sounds good we're seeing it it makes sense we're willing to join in the way and he would say then come to dinner then he would go out to the to the ethnic Greeks and Romans And he would say, uh, nice temple you have here uh, and nice uh, temple to Caesar and, and all of that. But a new king has come and he is more powerful. He was resurrected and, and he brings eternal life and, you, and all these, there's a fabulous amount of blessings and promises that you don't even know about and come and join us in the way. Come to dinner. So we would have this moment where we have uh, covenant Jews and pagan Gentiles and they're all showing up at the same dinner party. But think about as they're stepping through the threshold into that little house church it would be impossible for them, based on the things that they had known from as a child, to completely leave behind all their baggage at the doorstep. For a child growing up in Ephesus with a Artemis statue in her room that she would pray to and worship, to then say, you no longer need Artemis, let me introduce you to Christ. Come to dinner. They would come in and sit down. And then you would have the, the Romans and Greeks who are like, that, that, that are then sitting at dinner and here comes the Jews. And the Jews are saying, wait a minute, as a, from a child, I knew that you never sat down with Greeks. They are pagans. They're idol worshipers. I know about their Artemis statues. And we're not supposed to worship idols. You're wanting me to sit down at the same table with an idol worshiper 
who's going to leave me ritually unclean. And Paul is saying that was then. Leave that at the doorstep. This is now. They are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And right about the time that these Jews would have to come to grips with maybe having to sit and break bread with an idol worshiper, on top of that, Paul was also saying, oh, and by the way, you know that thing of specialness that you have that you're the covenant people and that you're the descendants of Abraham and that's why you have all the blessings that you have? Well, yes. Now it's your job to give that to them. Israel was supposed to not just be a blessing to themselves, but they were to be a light to the world. Well, what does that mean? What that means, they get all the blessings too. Of Abraham? Yes, of Abraham. Well, I'm not sure I can go that far. You're, you're having me, first of all, eat with them. Now you're wanting me to extend my specialness to them and now they are as special as I am? Well, I'm not sure I like that. It, it, it's a little bit, uh, as, as, our, as our kids were growing up, one of our favorite shows was uh, uh, watching Star Trek with, uh, with Jean-Luc Picard and, and all of that with a new generation of Star Trek, right? And, and there's a particular episode that I always loved. And that was this moment when the, the intrepid group of the, of, the, of the Enterprise is making first contact with, with this planet that doesn't know that there are other people out there. Uh, and, and by kind of hook or by crook, they're able to finally get the president of their, this world onto the Enterprise. And he's able to see his world from the Enterprise uh, orbiting uh, the planet. And he looks down at it, and and uh, they decide what they're going to do in terms of uh, are they ready to join the Federation of Planets, and you know. But there's this great moment with this with this president of this world, right? And and uh, Captain Picard says to him, "When you go home tonight, what are you going to tell your family at dinner?" And he says quite pointedly, he says. I'm going to have to tell them that when I woke up this morning, I thought I was the center of the universe. Now it turns out I'm just a voice in the choir. Well, that idea of being a voice in the choir, and it's a very special choir, but it's a singular voice in the choir, would be a hard thing for someone that had been the president of that to understand. And yeah, that's exactly what had to happen as Paul is trying to meld together these different believing ethnic religious groups and meld them into a single church uh, and have discussions over dinner about their differences. And I believe, and history explains, that that turned out to be much harder and much more difficult and ultimately didn't work very well because they had a hard time leaving behind the narratives that they carried 
and, and they had fewer and fewer promontory moments as they, they went along and eventually that divided uh, the church uh, and, and scattered it uh, quite a bit. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm aware of that because relationships require us to be able to uh, be able to hear one another and s think about those groups sitting across that table they needed to hear they needed to be able to listen to one another they needed to be able to understand where the desires of their heart and then they needed to know how to act covenant making and covenant keeping and receiving the promises of God requires that we hear and we listen and we understand and then we act and that's critical now in the time in, in, in the time that's remaining there's a couple of things that I would like to kind of kind of wrap up with number one when we are listening to one another it's important to note that we can listen and understand and still end up disagreeing with one another even when we have taken the time and energy to really hear and really understand uh, our action the thing that we will then do may be to then engage in some respectful dialogue let's take a look at why we differ on this and let's see what we can learn from this. I find it fascinating that Joseph Smith, who was, the, you know, who translated that Lehi's idea that there needed to be opposition in all things. Joseph took that idea and concluded this. He said, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. By looking at the other voices and then hearing them and trying to then prove the, com the contraries, having discussion about the differences in there. That's when truth is made manifest in the, in the relief, in the differences, in the contrast, not in just the similarities. Eugene England, uh, about 30 years ago, uh, wrote a kind of semi-famous article uh, called Why the Church is as True as the Gospel. Uh, and I would highly recommend you if you've never read that uh, incredible essay. But here's what he said. I believe the church is the best medium, apart from marriage, where it, where it much resembles in this respect, for grappling constructively with the oppositions of existence. The church is the greatest place to look at how does evolution mix with creation? How does how does listening by the Spirit mix with reason? How do we come to those kind of things? How do we mix with all of this? Now, the most pointed place I believe that this, this comes into uh, play, um, let, let me in closing just mention that over the last couple of weeks, I've had a chance to have uh, three singular discussions with three individuals that really kind of left me thinking about how well do I listen, and how well do I hear? Uh, the first one is a, uh, is a wonderful sister uh, who from her very earliest days recognized that she was attracted to other women. 
and struggled with same-sex attraction. And as she grew, she tried by prayer, she tried by scripture reading, she tried by obedience, she tried by dating, to date herself straight. She served a faithful mission, hoping that she would be healed of this attraction. She endured uh, crude jokes at you know Thanksgiving dinner. And it's only now that she looks at and this uh, and basically says, this is where this is the struggle that I have. And I'm caught between my testimony of the gospel, which is unshakable. I know it's true. And what do I do with these feelings? And how do I resolve this? And I don't know, and I didn't have a real clear answer for her, and I still don't. It's one of those things that uh, is, is a problem, okay? Person number two, wonderful sister, uh, African-American, who came into the church uh, a few years ago, has a rock-solid testimony of the church, and yet very much feels the the isolation of being a black member in a white church. And especially with all of the racial discussions going on, has very much sympathy with how hard it can be to be African American and the effect and the opportunities that that does or doesn't present to her. And she's caught. She's caught between uh, what she feels and what she's experienced in her own life, the testimony that she has of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the history of the church in regards to race, and some painful things there that she's studying and kind of come to grips with, and her non-member friends and family that are saying to her very clearly, what are you doing in a racist church? And she says, I'm here because I have a testimony of this church. Yeah, but what are you doing? What were you thinking? And all I can do is listen. <laughs> and pray for her. And pray that we do not lose her voice. Even when sometimes those voices are people in her own ward who have said unwittingly, with the best of intention, very unkind things to her. Third sister, well-educated, driven, and, and accomplished, who, who cries about the fact that she finds very few female voices in the scriptures and feels a sense of discount at times in what feels like a male-dominated church. And isn't quite sure what the solution to that is, but knows that she somehow, that somehow her ideas and input gets discounted. And prays for a time that, that she will hear more voices and, and feels the changes that are out there, but still is aware of the, of the difference. Brothers and sisters, we have other voices that sometimes we need to be able to listen and strive to understand. 
before we are so quick to talk and act. Let me finish with this. I want, I want to, <laughs> it's one of those things I get to do. I get to uh, uh, change the scripture just a little bit and I will finish with this. I want to, I want to kind of steal a little bit from Alma tw uh, uh, 32.28. Now, we will compare the words of these, voice, these voices of, uh, of these people in our midst to a seed. If you will give place and listen to understand that their words may be planted in your heart. If you do not cast it out by your preset beliefs, that you will resist the spirit beheld, their words will begin to swell within you. And when you feel these swelling motions, you'll begin to say within yourselves, it begins to enlighten my understanding. It beginneth to be delicious to me as we strive to find bridges and ways to connect. As we listen with a covenant heart. I pray that we can find promontories, promontories and places to connect. I think the Lord intends that to happen. As if we love and if we care about these wonderful voices in our midst. And I pray that we can do that and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.